Hello everyone, and welcome back to MIR Meets. Yasha Monk is the head of a substack known as Persuasion, which covers a lot of political trends and the way that they've been affecting the world at large. And he is also a contributing writer for The Atlantic. He is also a professor of the practice of international affairs at John Hopkins, a senior fellow at the Council of Foreign Relations and a Moynihan's public scholar at City College. And the list goes on and on. So I brought him onto this podcast to talk about his new book, which is titled The Identity Trap. It's about a series, a recent series of cultural trends and ideas that have been prominent over the past few years. There are many different ways that it could be characterized, and we get into this during the recording a little bit, but he likes to refer to these sets of ideas as the identity synthesis. So I found this podcast really fascinating because it was it was really nice to try to talk to him and try to fully understand the distinctions that he draws around this thesis of his in his new book. So yeah, I hope you enjoy the pod. Yasha Monk, thank you so much for taking the time to come onto this podcast. Of course, I'm looking forward to it, Andrew. All right. Um, so to begin, just to ask the most generic question of all time, why did you choose the term identity, identity synthesis for your new book? And also, yeah, explain the book, I guess. Uh, yes. So, you know, the, the book is called The Identity Trap, and it's because I think that there's a new set of ideas about race, gender, and sexual orientation, which claim to make the world a better place, which try to uh, address injustices in the world that certainly are real, but that I think ultimately are a trap, which are going to prove counterproductive to the very goals that the advocates of these ideas of this ideology are pushing for. Now, one of the questions is what to name this ideology, how to refer to it. And the uh, term that is probably the most used is the word woke, um, which started as a self-description of people who uh, believe in these ideas. Uh, even five or so years ago, it was still quite normal for people to say proudly, I am woke. Um, but it's now become so exclusively used by critics of the ideology, by people who see it very skeptically, but when you're going on about work this, work that, you sort of sound a little bit like an old man shouting at the clouds. Um, so I wanted to coin a more neutral term that people who like this ideology and people who see it critically can both use, just as there are some people who consider themselves socialists and some people who don't like socialism, but they can all call that ideology by the name of socialism. Well, I think we need a similar term for quote-unquote wokeness, and I suggest the identity synthesis because this is a set of ideas fundamentally about what role group identities like race and gender and sexual orientation should play in our society. And they are, as I argue in the intellectual history portion of a book, a synthesis of different intellectual traditions, including postmodernism and poststructuralism and critical race theory. So I think one interesting strain of the answer you gave is the whole idea about how some people might refer to like your characterization of the identity synthesis as wokeness. But then one of the problems is that like different people view woke wokeness differently, like different people have de different definitions of wokeness. And that's one of the things that makes it hard to like characterize it in this particular moment. So I guess the natural logical question to ask as a result would be like, how would you personally define the, identi the identity synthesis? Yeah, so I have a few different ways of thinking about that in the book. One way of doing that is to trace its intellectual history and see some of the main themes that emerge from that. And I think some of the themes that are very 
uh, prominent in contemporary social justice politics uh, that have these kind of intellectual roots include a skepticism towards the idea of objective truth, um, the use of uh, what I call a politicized form of discourse analysis. So to think that one way of doing politics is to uh, critique, to problematize certain forms of cultural representation, for example, um, the embrace of what I call strategic essentialism. So both the recognition that there's reason to be skeptical towards essentialist notions of identity, but then actually the insistence that for strategic political purposes, we should encourage people to lean into those kinds of identities, for example, for the use of things like affinity groups, um, the claim uh, that uh, various forms of oppression uh, like racism or sexism are practically permanent, but they haven't really gotten very much better, and that in order to remedy them, we have to make distinctions between people on the basis of a group into which they belong. Uh, and then finally, the sort of readings of intersectionality that have become uh, popular uh, in activist circles as both meaning that if you stand at a different intersection of identities to me, I might not really be able to understand you, and as meaning that if we want to fight for a better world, for a more just world, then uh, we have to uh, uh, fight against all forms of oppression at the same time. And so to be an environmentalist standing in, uh, an environmentalist activist in good standing, you also have to have a certain kinds of view about, uh, uh, you know, gay rights or trans rights or Israel-Palestine or a whole set of different issues. So that's one kind of way of thinking about it. I also suggest uh, what philosophers call a rational reconstruction, a way to boil a rich, complicated, sometimes messy ideological tradition down into some of its main claims, some of its core ideas. And that rational reconstruction would say that there's three fundamental claims that really animate the identity synthesis. And that's number one, the idea that uh, the key prism you have to look at to understand the world, the key prism to understand how we're interacting today, or the key prism to look at to understand political events like revolutions, is to focus on uh, questions of group identity like race, gender, and sexual orientation. Secondly, it's to say that we should be very skeptical towards any form of universal uh, value or neutral rule, um, because all of those, uh, for they are meant to ensure that people are treated equally, actually just pull the wool over people's eyes and perpetuate forms of injustice and inequality. And third and finally, that therefore the only way we're going to make progress is to rip up those universal values and those neutral principles and to make how we treat each other and how the state treats all of us explicitly depend on the kind of group into which we're born. So I think those three principles actually help to define, philosophically speaking, the core of this ideology. Yeah, and I think it's it's really fascinating to sort of try to compare and contrast your definition of that ideology with the the characterization of quote-unquote wokeness made by, for example, certain people on the right. So you made a guest appearance on the, the Realignment podcast with Marshall Kozlov, where you made a sort of like a qualified distinction that I was thought that I thought was kind of important. So I'm going to quote it right now. Quote, I think it's natural that in a free society and a diverse society with people who have lots of different religious beliefs and lots of different ethnicities, there's going to be some form of quote unquote identity politics. I don't think there's anything inherently problematic about people saying, hey, there are people who are more similar to me along some identity line, and we're going to have to organize together and to make sure that when we're being mistreated, we have remedy for that and we can fight for some common interests. 
So you could you talk a little bit about this and like a the ways in which this is like a do you find this to be like a fairly unobjectionable form of liberalism and b how does that potentially draw a distinction between you and the sort of anti woke people on the right like Chris Rufo? Yeah, I think one way to think about that is through the uh, you know great uh, uh, African American political tradition in the United States. Um, you know, when you look at people like um, Frederick Douglass, or you look at people like uh, Martin Luther King Jr., uh, I, I suppose on uh, one definition of it, they engaged in identity politics. I mean, they organized not exclusively, but predominantly African Americans to oppose injustices that were facing African Americans. Um, but what was crucial about it is that their vision for how to create a better world was one in which we would be less defined by the identity groups into which we were born. And they thought that we would get that by uh, demanding that they be treated in accordance with the universal values and neutral rules that uh, uh, American society had historically claimed to live up to, even as it hypocritically uh, failed to do so in a blatant way. So Frederick Douglass thinks that free speech is the dread of tyrants because Foe had allowed some people to say terrible things in his day. It also allowed uh, people to argue for the then very unpopular course of abolitionism. Um, you know, he didn't say that we should rip up the US Constitution. He exhorted his fellow citizens to live up to him, saying they're hypocrites if they talk about how lovely the 4th of July is without actually recognizing that uh, African Americans are continuing to be enslaved in a deeply immoral way. Um, today, I worry about a form of identity politics that doesn't try to live up to universal values in that kind of way, um, that says that the way forward is a society in which how you treat it always depends on the group of which we're a part, and that in order to remedy uh, historical injustices, we need to now give uh, special programs, dispensations, treatment to members of particular groups. And I think that that both um, enshrines some of the very categories that have historically done so much damage, like race, at the very heart of our society. And it is, I think, quite naive about how it is that you build political majorities in societies in which the historically dominant groups continue to be quite powerful. Why do we think that a zero-sum conflict for resources, a zero-sum conflict for who gets what from the state when, is always going to be resolved in favor of the minority groups? So I would distinguish between uh, legitimate interest representation, where people are calling attention to identity-based injustices, but want to build a society in which uh, the group into which we're born defines us less than it did in the past, and those who are leaning into a vision of society in which uh, those forms of identity always uh, remain, whether you choose to or not, the most important thing about you. So something that, for example, you would consider a more legitimate form of identity-based representation to be like the NAACP? Yeah, I mean, you know, whenever you talk about actual organizations, it becomes a little bit hard, but, but yes, um, uh, you know, first of all, it's perfectly natural to have certain forms of interest representation, like, say, the American Association for Retired People, right? It's like those people who are old, they rely more on social security, they have specific problems, it's perfectly helpful to have a voice that speaks for them. Um, but then, yes, I think even when it's around an identity marker like an ethnicity, 
um, there are organizations that have historically uh, represented the interests of those groups in ways that I think are conducive with um, the basic principles of our society and philosophical liberalism. And there's those that um, I think have a naive vision for how to build a better world that is identitarian in a way that uh, uh, you know turns uh, the color of your skin into the most important thing about you and that envisages a world in which uh, you know, you're always going to have this intensified form of group competition for recognition and for resources that I think is going to end badly for all of us and may particularly end badly for uh, genuinely marginalized groups. Yeah, so I think it's it's very interesting how uh, your characterization is that the identity synthesis runs in like contrast to the type of ideology expressed by people like Frederick Douglass or MLK. I think that your characterization runs in direct contrast to someone on the right that I would personally consider to be quite reactionary. Like Richard Hanania, for example, would make the argument that wokeness and like is a direct product of like civil rights legislation. So could you give your own character, like, could you talk a little bit about Derek Bell and the extent to which you think that his commentary led to parts of the identity synthesis from your point of view? Yeah, so you see the ways in which uh, the main thinkers in the tradition of the identity synthesis have been uh, critical of the civil rights movement uh, from the beginning um, when you actually read the text. So, you know, Derek Bell is widely acknowledged as the founder of critical race theory, a very interesting um, uh, a thinker and lawyer. I recently spoke at the University of Pittsburgh, which is both uh, the city in which he grew up and the university that he attended, as I believe at the time, the, the only black man in uh, his law school class, um, you know, clearly a time of, uh, uh, even in the north of America, not just in the south of the United States, um, extreme racial discrimination and prejudice. Um, and he had a very distinguished uh, career, in fact, as you were mentioning earlier, the NAACP for part of the 1960s, helping to integrate uh, schools and businesses uh, throughout the American South. Um, so somebody who I respect and admire, who's an interesting thinker, but who very explicitly, when he left the NAACP and uh, turned to legal academia, uh, came to attack the civil rights movement, who marked We Shall Overcome as what he called a kind of theme song of the civil rights movement, who said that we have to overcome, quote unquote, the defunct racial equality ideology of the civil rights movement. Somebody who came to think that Brown versus Board of Education, the key Supreme Court ruling which integrated American schools, desegregated American schools, was in many ways a mistake, but perhaps we would have needed schools that were separate but truly equal. So um, it's it's hard to uh, understate, uh, so it's hard to overstate um, uh, how clearly he saw his work as being a critique of uh, uh, civil rights legislation. I mean, in fact, um, uh, you know, the famous first uh, a protest when Derek Bell leaves Harvard in Law School in 1980 and becomes a dean at a different university and uh, his kind of course in critical race theory is going to be uh, substituted for by a classic civil rights lawyer. And that is precisely what young students like Kimberly Crenshaw protest, because they say that is not what Derek Bell was doing. We don't just want civil rights law. We want critical race theory. That is something very, very different. So you see from the beginning 
um, how radical this rejection is. And it is in particular a rejection of the idea that uh, we should aim to live up to these universal moral standards. That's interesting. So would you consider like nihilism and or fatalism to be a necessary condition for some ideology to count as part of the identity synthesis? Uh, no, uh, I, I wouldn't say nihilism. Um, I don't think that these are nihilistic thinkers exactly. Um, perhaps fatalism comes closer to it. I do think that there is a fundamental skepticism about our ability to make progress. So Derek Bell again and again talked about the permanence of racism, and by which he didn't just mean that there will always be some amount of racism in our society, but this is the kind of evil that we'll never be able to fully overcome, which uh, is a plausible thought. But but he really said that, um, you know, racism was mutating and shape-shifting and taking different forms in different historical junctures, but it had not gotten any better than it had been in the past. But effectively, America in the year 2000, he passed away a few years after that, was just about as racist as it had been in 1950 or 1850. Um, a judgment that I think is wrong and in fact offensive, not to the wonderful Americans or Canadians or uh, whoever living today, but to the people who suffered much worse forms of racial discrimination and exclusion and enslavement and uh, uh, so on uh, in the past. Um, so I do think that that pessimism about the ability of liberal societies to make progress is a pretty central component of the identity synthesis because otherwise you'd end up as uh, a liberal, as somebody who says uh, uh, our societies have had terrible injustices in the past, they remain significantly imperfect today. But in fact, as somebody like Barack Obama would have argued, we can uh, uh, improve our society by invoking the best things in our political tradition, by trying to live up to our values more and more closely. And that is how we've been able to make progress historically. Yeah, I find that really interesting because you you frequently reference Barack Obama as a type of like progressive liberal who like espouses of a vision of the future that you have much more support for. Is it because of like you agree with his specific policies to a greater extent, or is it because or is it more because of his sense of hope and optimism in terms of his vision for the future? Well, it's a little bit of both. I mean, it's certainly that. Um, I think on an important questions of public policy, he would strongly disagree with the members of a tradition of critical race theory. But it is also because um, of his broader vision of society, of one where he certainly is very aware of racial injustice in the United States. Um, he certainly does not claim that America in his day or today is a perfect society. Um, but he's also conscious of the fact that we have been able to make progress by uh, trying to live up to the values of the United States Constitution by building broad coalitions of people who are united in some amount of mutual understanding and in the shared desire for a less imperfect union, for a more just uh, society. So I would say it's both of those things. Yeah. So I guess that's that's something I find fascinating. So to elaborate a little bit, who are some examples of progressive liberals, or what are some examples of ideas that you would consider to be fairly un unobjectionable forms of progressive liberalism, whereas certain people on the right um, would necessarily characterize it as wokeness anyway? Well, one of the things is that, uh, you know, I think we obviously have to be very 
conscious of forms of discrimination that persist in our society and fight against them. So, for example, sociologists have found for a long time in CV-based experiments, and with some indication that um, uh, this has improved in the course of the last years, um, uh, but that, uh, for example, in France, um, if you have a Muslim-sounding name, um, you're far less likely to be invited to an interview than if you have a Christian-sounding name. Uh, that in the United States, if you have a name that uh, codes as, that reads as, uh, indicating that you're probably white, you're more likely to be invited to a first-round interview than if you have a name that reads as being African-American, even if these survey experiments, right, these sociologists sending out these fake resumes to companies, um, even if you're exactly as qualified of the same GPA, you know, every other detail of your CV is the same. Well, that's obviously a, an injustice that our fellow citizens face. We should study that injustice, as many people have done, and then we should act on it. We should try and find uh, concrete remedies to overcome that. I think that's something that many people on the right would be less likely to uh, address and acknowledge and want to do something about. Um, now, I am skeptical of uh, uh, dealing with that by making somebody's race front and center of a hiring process in every context of saying, for example, that if there's 10% of uh, members of some ethnicity in society, um, then uh, at every level of the company, exactly 10% of people from that ethnicity should be represented in those kinds of positions. I think that leads to um, perverse consequences, including, by the way, discrimination against uh, groups that have historically overperformed, um, like uh, East Asian immigrants to the United States. Um, and so that sort of situates me, I think, within a, um, a broad left liberalism that can simultaneously be skeptical of those who don't want to acknowledge the existence of racism at all, for example, on the right, but also of those identitarians who want to make the way you're treated less rather than more dependent on your individual attributes, just under a different kind of uh, sign. Yeah, so I guess when it comes to the disagreements that you would have with people that might, like that we might characterize as being part of the identity synthesis camp, I guess the first question as a result would be like, who are some prominent figures in the present day that you would consider to be proponents of the identity synthesis? Well, I think the, the ideas and the practices are very widespread. So when you look, for example, at the fact that a growing number, in particular of elite private schools in the United States, have teachers coming in, sometimes as early as third grade or second grade or first grade, and split kids up by race, um, you know, put black kids into one classroom and uh, Asian-American kids into a second classroom, Latino kids into a third classroom, and fourth, uh, white kids into a fourth class classroom, and uh, try to teach them to see themselves as racial beings, to lean into their racial identities. I think that that's counterproductive, um, in particular in what's going to happen to those white kids, not because they might be uncomfortable, which is fine as part of an education, but because I think it will um, encourage them in many cases to fight for the racial interests of their in-group. They say the most important thing apparently about me is that I'm white. Well, let me fight for the interests of whites, the way that members of most groups end up fighting for the interests of those groups. And that's what's primed in the context. Um, so that's an example of one kind of practice. Um, in terms of the most popular uh, proselytizers of this ideology, I would say that um, uh, Robin DiAngelo and Ibram X. Kendi uh, are particularly important, both hugely best-selling authors, who between them, I think, have 
created a kind of unfalsifiable set of beliefs. Um, uh, one way, if you criticize their ideas, that itself is somehow uh, proof that you are a bad person. Um, so according to Ibram X. Kendi, for example, there's only uh, uh, racist and anti-racist and nothing in between, uh, not just as human beings, but in institutions and other kinds of things. So the choir you are a member of is either anti-racist, it subscribes to his uh, very particular idea of what it takes to be an anti-racist, or it is by default a racist organization. I think that's Manichaean, um, uh, you know, trying to split everything into good or bad uh, in an overly uh, extreme way. Um, Robin D'Angelo says uh, that, you know, whites suffer from white fragility. And uh, therefore, if you criticize them, if you say that they're all racists, as she believes all white people are, they get really upset. Um, and, and, and when being upset at being called that is, in fact, proof of their racism. So, uh, you know, here you see how unfalsifiable this ideology is, because either you agree with D'Angelo's assumption that every white person is a racist, or if you express any criticism of that idea, that's just proof of your white fragility, um, and therefore proof of just how much of a racist you are. Um, I don't think that these ideas are either internally coherent uh, or that they can uh, help to build uh, the basis for a more just society. So what would you say to the idea that someone might raise to your response that like talking about them and being very vocal in terms of your disagreement with them might unintentionally grant them a degree of legitimacy that they don't deserve? Well, I, I mean, you know, D'Angelo and Candy were the two most best-selling authors of 2020, I believe. Um, you know, they have uh, plenty of legitimacy uh, out there in the world. Um, and no, I think that I worry about a different problem, which is that uh, in many contexts, in many milieus, um, on some university campuses, it's been very taboo to criticize these ideas. But people aren't idiots, and they see when some of those practices in their own communities have gone off the rails. Um, and so when the only people who, crit who criticize these ideas are ones that actually are reactionaries on the right, but want to turn people against the basic principles of our society, but want to say, you know, if you don't like these practices on your campus, then perhaps you should just hate diversity as a whole. Um, if those are the only voices that are able to give voice to some of that frustration, I think that might actually tempt some people to drift off into rather dangerous political uh, territory. So I think it's important for somebody um, who cares about building an ethnically and religiously diverse society in which we are actually able to treat each other decently and stand in solidarity with each other to criticize these uh, accesses of the identity synthesis uh, from a principled point of view. Yeah. So I guess I want to zero in a little bit more on more like potential things and like the distinction between whether they count as unobjectionable progressive liberalism or whether they count as being part of the identity synthesis. So like, for example, like, what do you think of the phrase people of color? Do you think that's a like just like a normal term that might be used by liberals? Or do you think it unintentionally is a manifestation of the identity synthesis? It depends on the context. Um, I find that, uh, you know, language always has certain absurdities, right? I mean, one of the strange absurdities of uh, North America today is that if you talk about colored people, you sound like a horrible racist. But if you call about, talk about people of color, you code as woke. Even for so far as I can tell, it's a very, very similar phrase. Um, uh, you know, so 
uh, I think it's aware. It's always helpful to be aware of some of those historical ironies as we talk about the world. Um, you know, in certain contexts, it, it can be helpful to have a term that picks out people who are not white. Um, uh, when that is used uh, to do a few different things, I start to worry. One of them is uh, to suggest that all people who are not white have some uh, very deep essential set of experiences that they share irrespective of context. Um, I think that often simply is not true. It's very, very different to grow up, for example, um, as a descendant of uh, people who are enslaved in the most deprived parts of the United States, um, let's say, for example, in some of the poorer neighborhoods of Baltimore. Um, it's very different to, uh, like an acquaintance of mine, um, come to the country as the you know, child of a father who is a British aristocrat and a mother who is a member of the uh, Indian Brahmin class um, in order to attend an elite college. Um, I'm not saying that these two people might not sometimes share certain forms of racism or, or disadvantage, but to say that, you know, effectively as people of color, they both have the same experience of the world is uh, just, I think, an absurd uh, oversimplification of what the world really looks like. And so secondly, one of the concerns I have is when we use, not the term people of color in itself, but this uh, uh, juxtaposition, as whites and as people of color, um, that, that can easily suggest that, uh, you know, society is uh, destined to be split into these two rival camps, that whites are going to fight for their interests and people of color naturally should and do stand together. Um, if that description comes true, it would be terrible for our society. We'd be on the brink of civil war. Um, frankly, I don't think it is true. I think that when you look at who people vote for and what people's political alliances are and where their interests dovetail and come apart and diverge, uh, the, the world is much, much more complicated than that. So again, I have no problem with the term people of color, but I um, uh, uh, think that it's sometimes used uncritically in ways that are misleading about the world. Yeah, so I guess when it's used uncritically as like like a starting premise, the phrase people of color could like either intentionally or un unintentionally imply that whiteness is essentially the default kind of identity. And basically anyone who isn't white just like ends up getting lumped into their own category. Yeah, that's one of the ironies of it, right? That, that, that it's sort of supposed to validate people of color in a certain kind of way, but also um, uh, uh, does actually, as you're pointing out, make whiteness a, a kind of default, right? It's also a slightly ugly person. People of color, what does that mean? I mean? Is white not a color? And what does it mean to be of color? I mean, the more you dissect those phrases, the stranger they become. But that's true of many phrases in, in the English language. Yeah. Um... So I guess when it comes to... And whites, like, of course, are not literally white as well. So, you know, you can say yeah. the same thing about that. Yeah, or like like pink, I guess, maybe. Um, right, right. Yeah. But anyway, so like, I guess when it comes to like wokeness or like the way that you would phrase it as the identity synthesis, do you think there's like, because like you're coming from like a centrist or center-left democratic camp, do you think there's like a difference between the way that you might characterize it through the identity synthesis and the way that some like anti-woke person on the far light, far left, like Freddie DeBoer might characterize it. 
Yeah, I think there's some similarities and some differences. I mean, I uh, draw on the work of some people on the far left who view the identity synthesis very critically, explicitly in my book. So, for example, the uh, Marxist African-American political philosopher Adolf Reed Jr. has, I think, very good critiques of a notion of equity, as it's often implied now. You know, roughly speaking, equity, as Reed points out, is a form of racist proletarianism, right? It's a concern about... Um, uh, you know, ethnic groups on average getting differential access to wages or or or, or wealth. And there's something plausible about that. We don't want to live in a society where I can look at you and uh, by observing the color of your skin can assume that you're poor or rich or something like that. But obviously, um, is not a good society to live in. And it's particularly unjust when uh, that is the case as a result of deeply unjust historical processes like slavery and Jim Crow and so on. Um, but it's a much more complicated question uh, whether building a just society should mostly be guided, uh, predominantly be guided, significantly be guided by uh, the uh, goal of overcoming those kinds of disparities. Be because, as Reed points out, you know, if we created a society in which about 13% of billionaires are black, about 13% of the U.S. population is African-American, um, then we would basically be at equity in terms of distribution of wealth in the United States, but it might be an extremely unequal society in which there's 100 billionaires and everybody else is starving. And that would clearly not be the kind of society we want. So we should um, be aware of the limitations of this kind of ideal. So that's a critique that I take from the work of uh, somebody who would see themselves as being on the far left, uh, on the radical left, um, uh, uh, with whom I have certain disagreements, but who I think um, has sort of uh, through their lens of class analysis helped us see one important shortcoming of uh, a key concept in the identity synthesis. So I guess like when it comes to your vision of a hopeful future that is able to remedy a lot of past injustices and forms of discrimination, what are some ways that your vision of that hopeful future might be different from the hopeful future envisioned by like certain anti-woke Marxists that you speak of? Well, when we when 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 the distinction is to Marxists, for example, I think part of the uh, division is going to be about whether or not uh, free markets should be part of uh, a just society. Um, um, you know, that's not at the heart of this book project, but it's an important disagreement. Um, I'm a kind of European social democrat, which is to say that I think that uh, we do need. Uh, 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 the mechanism of a market, um, and in fact, we've created enormous wealth for people through uh, uh, competition of different companies and so on. Uh, but I also think we need state regulation to make sure that those companies don't um, uh, 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 cheat their customers and pr produce unsafe products and all kinds of other things. And we need a welfare state, which means that if you fall sick and you're unable to work, you still have a dignified life. If you are born without special talents. If you don't end up going to a fancy university like McGill, you still actually end up uh, having uh, the ability to make a decent livelihood. Um, uh, so, so I think we need the state to step in and uh, 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 make sure that we all profit from the market. But the market in itself is, I think, a very, very useful mechanism. Um, uh, I don't know about Adolf Reed specifically on this question, but certainly many Marxists would reject that and say that we should have the state own most of the means of production. I think that historical experience tells us that that has really gone pretty badly wrong. 
Yeah, so I guess switching gears a little bit to talk about more of like the manifestations of the identity synthesis in the present day, to what extent do you think social media or especially Twitter is responsible for amplifying the problems of the identity synthesis? And to what extent do you think this would still be a huge problem even if there weren't bad social media algorithms? So I think um, social media has helped to create the rise of this ideology in important ways. And part of how it's done that is to um, give a lot of emphasis on forms of identity in a way that wasn't necessarily true uh, previously. So when the internet was invented, people thought, oh, this is going to allow us to communicate with people really far away and suddenly we're going to see that we have everything in common with somebody in uh, Taiwan or in Kenya or wherever who we thought was really different from us. Um, uh, you know, actually what's happened is that a lot of people have just sought out people who are very, very similar to them. Um, and it's reduced the threshold for forming new kinds of groups. I mean, in an analog world, to have an identity, a social identity, you have to have other people share it. And most likely you're going to find them in high school or something. And so if you want at least 10 people who share that identity, well, that actually limits how many identities there can be. Um, now you can find 20, 30 people virtually somewhere in the world and that means it's 20 or 30 out of millions, and suddenly you can have many more identity groups. That's one of the kinds of ways in which social media, I think, has really driven this renewed emphasis on identity and and, and self-definitions of different identity categories and so on um, in people's lives. I think that's going to stay even if we, you know, improve the algorithm so that, you know, what Twitter serves you up, what TikTok serves you up is, you know, less... Uh, divisive or less inflammatory or has less misinformation or, you know, whatever else you might wish for. I think that's going to change that fundamental dynamic. All right. Final question. So obviously when it comes to your own history of being like a Jew from Germany and now being American, how do you, how would you say that like your own personal history and your own personal identity has influenced your views on the identity synthesis? Yeah, I'm so first of all, by the way, I think it's perfectly normal that all of us are shaped in some ways by the group from which we stem and that that helps to inform our view of the world. It doesn't determine it, right? And that's one of the problems with thinking that I'm, I can recognize you just by looking at your particular identities, right? Um, uh, my brother has a similar intersection of identities as me, but I'm different from my brother. And if the world just saw me as identical to my brother because we have these similar identities... Um, I would balk at that and say, no, I'm I'm myself. I have my own tastes and inclinations and accomplishments and flaws. And that's what should determine my perception, my standing in the world, which is a more complicated kind of thing. Um, but but yes, I am shaped uh, uh, by growing up in Germany and by being Jewish. You know, one of the things that it's informed me on um, is that when I was growing up in Germany, there was actually a lot of philo-Semitism. There's a lot of uh, Germans who were rightly and understandably horrified by the history of their country um, meeting a Jew, often for the first time, because there weren't many Jews living in Germany then. There still aren't living, a lot of Jews living in Germany now, but there were very few at the time. Um, and so they wanted to sort of make me the object of a demonstrated goodwill. You know, they wanted to prove to me um, how deeply sorry they were by treating me in some kind of specially kind or um, uh, especially warm way. Um, but for me, that often felt me, made me feel very alienated um, because it didn't feel like they were interacting with me as an individual. It felt like I was some weird symbol to them and in a slightly creepy way, they were sort of uh, 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 you know, celebrating their guilt um, in the way they, they treated me. 
Um, and I don't want to draw an easy parallel between that and race relations in North America, um, uh, which are quite different. Um, uh, there's many important disanalogies. Um, but in the most extreme reaches of uh, what the practice inspired by the identity synthesis can look like, I, 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 I smell a certain similarity. I have a feeling that um, there's a kind of expectation to treat each other in these slightly strange, ritualistic, uh, at times creepy ways um, that, in my experience, don't actually help to create a relationship of equals, don't help to put us in a position where we can genuinely be friends, co-workers, co-conspirators, fellow citizens, compatriots, uh, on a uh, footing of genuine equality. And that is, I think, one of the reasons why um, I react so illogically to it. All right. Yasha Monk, thank you so much for taking the time to come onto this podcast. It means a lot. Andrew, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening. If you like the episode, make sure to follow us on Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time, goodbye.